Hello, I'm BZ Douglas, an independent journalist based outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and the co-producer slash lead researcher on State of Injustice, a documentary series examining systemic issues with Ohio law enforcement. Our pilot season is available at stateofinjustice.com. Uh, it is focused on Euclid, Ohio, and you can also find it streaming on the Real News Network. In the third and final episode of our first season, entitled Patrol and Control, was premiered last week on the Real News Network, and it was followed by an excellent panel discussion with some of the people that we interviewed for the documentary series, uh, and that was conducted by Jocelyn Noor of the Real News Network, and I highly recommend it. And so one of uh, the people that was actually interviewed for that and that we interviewed for State of Injustice was Christopher McNeil. He's a BLM uh, Cleveland board member and the attorney who represented Richard Hubbard III in his successful civil case against the city of Euclid for brutality he experienced by their police department. Um, so once we brought up the subject of training with Chris, he immediately referred me to Mariah Crenshaw of Chasing Justice LLC. And her organization has been tracking officer training in Ohio for nearly three years. Uh, she also worked with the Department of Justice, helping them administer the consent decree that was imposed on Cleveland. So since that very first phone call uh, nearly a year ago, Mariah and I have kept in regular touch about the work that we are both doing. It was actually at her urging that I put together my most recent report on the killing of Vincent Belmonte by Officer Larry McDonald of the East Cleveland Police Department. Um, it honestly, at this point, I, I it just it, it started to become apparent to me it wasn't fair to keep Mariah to myself. So. Welcome to the very first Monday with Mariah. Uh, every two weeks or so, her and I will get together and we'll catch up on the work that Chasing Justice is doing, as well as dis discussing uh, my own stories and, and how they tend to overlap. So this past weekend, Mariah joined me in my home to go over some details about Larry McDonald and the East Cleveland police that did not make it into my report. And that conversation pretty organically moves into a discussion about the investigation and legal actions that Chasing Justice is engaged in regarding officer training in Ohio. And so if you have any questions or comments that you would like Mariah or I to address in, in upcoming episodes, you can email bzlistening at gmail.com or mariahkren at gmail.com written somewhere on the screen around where my face is and that about covers it thanks for joining me for the first of hopefully many episodes with mariah and now let's get on with the show i was engaged by east cleveland residents um to um they weren't able to to get records mm -hmm. um larry mcdonald had left east cleveland in 2000 early 2017 i believe and when he left East Cleveland, they were happy. Like everybody was happy he was gone. Like nobody wanted him to come back. So he came into Cleveland and I, in 2014, helped the um, Department of Justice to gather the information that led to the current consent decree. And so I've worked with the commission um, and especially looking at lateral moved officers, 
who came into Cleveland because that was one of the big issues with Timothy Loman coming into Cleveland, um, though he was not a lateral moved officer. And we could talk about that, too. I think that's going to be oh, interesting yeah. for us to discuss. Um, he was not a lateral move officer. He had not had an appointment for two years when he came into Cleveland. So, you know, but they did not look at his background. They did not get his records to see what type of officer he was and how he was in basic training. So when Larry McDonald came back to East Cleveland, um, the residents were furious and they had gone to council and they just really protested. Um, and they thought maybe something had happened in Cleveland where he left because in Cleveland, he was making somewhere close to 68000 a year, and he comes back to East Cleveland, and he's making $16 an hour. So there was, like, what happened in Cleveland. So now can I pause and, sure. real quick and, and ask? So he has this this nickname, Larry McDonald Pac-Man. Correct. For gobbling up lives and money on, on the streets. Correct. So is has a lot of, like, you know, when they, they they didn't want him coming back, is this all going back to how he's been on this, you know... Yes. How he works on the streets? Yes. And, and I assume a lot of the, the stuff he's done, you know, it's not out there in the public record. People aren't coming forward to tell these stories, but they seem widely known from people who live in East Cleveland. Exactly. Um, he, he has a long history of malfeasance and misconduct. And, I mean, I have streams of social media posts where if you post his name, people will automatically just kind of jump on it and say, he stole this from me. He did that from me. Um, he, you know, he ran my name through the database and found out where I lived. And so many women were saying, yeah, there, I mean, I have streams and streams. In fact, I'll dig them out and kind of send them to you so you can see, but streams and streams of public comments um, concerning him and his conduct and, and, and the things he was doing. Um, you know, he's he's just not a normal guy <laughs> from what I've seen um, in terms of posting uh, from from uh, the public, uh, particularly females. And so there are females who have, um, you know, taken his advances and, and have defended him, you know. Um, oh, you're just trying to make him look bad. No, he makes himself look bad. But so, so, so we have here, like, just the quintessential bad apple. Correct. Yes. And, you know, but... This is what he exposes is the problem of like, why is this bad apple not getting tossed out? Well, you know, so and and moved around and protected and and, and defended. My, you know, it's been referred to as um, East Cleveland is the last stop. Like you you can't go anywhere else once you get to East Cleveland. That's it. Um, and you know, my daughter refers to it as the island of misfits. You know, if back in the day, this is kind of aging myself out. Um, there was the uh, Island of Misfits where with uh, Rudolph and you know that you know he was the he was the misfit and he ended mm -hmm. up you know meeting the little boy who was an elf who wanted he was an elf and he wanted to be those, a dentist. Those were very endearing characters. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> but you know they went to the Island of Misfits where all the toys that had been mismade were sent to, and so she you know she kind of dubs it and says, "Hey, Moss, you know it's the Island of Misfits," and so it is. It very much is because I've looked through every single one of their records past uh, pe persons who were employed and held appointments with the department. Um, all of them have very, very um, dark backgrounds in law enforcement where they have been removed from other departments because of their conduct, their misconduct, I should say. Um, and so Larry, he never moved out of East Cleveland. He stayed there. He was very comfortable being there because no one ever stopped him from, you know, and even now he has not been stopped. 
um, from his his bad conduct. So when you look at East Cleveland, um, him coming into Cleveland was going, you know, he, he just came across my threshold. Um, the residents were like, you know, Mariah, we can't get any records on this guy. And so there's a piece in the consent decree that requires the Cleveland Police Department to pull the records from all of the previous agencies and to note, you know, past conduct um, of the uh, officer. And so um, they couldn't get any records. You know, they got no records from, from Cleveland when they put them in. They, and East Cleveland, well, they don't have records because they don't keep records. Um, so they were like really, really upset because, you know, so, they just knew something happened in Cleveland that made him come back to leave such a job, you know, that, that paid so much more for him to come back. Um, and so, you know, of course, Chasing Justice started asking questions and talking to people in um, that were responsible for, you know, bringing people like Larry into Cleveland and found that, you know, Larry left because he said Cleveland had too many rules he did not want to follow. And so, um, you know, he wanted to chase cars. He wanted to be able to pull people over. He wanted to do those type of things. So he left Cleveland and went back to East Cleveland because there were no rules. Um and that he was just free to do whatever he wanted to do. And so that was very disturbing um, when we found that out. So um, public records requests that went out, um, no responses. And then um, I put out some record requests to Cleveland. And it was interesting because the records request that one of the residents had received was very different than what I received from the city of Cleveland. Um, Larry had been arrested for carrying a concealed weapon um, a few years ago. and they sent that information to the resident who had asked for Larry's Cleveland records. And so, but there were records that were missing. And so I was like, hey, this isn't all his records. There's more stuff. It has to be. And so I sent a public records request um, and saw that what he received and what I received were not the same files. They were very different files. And so I put another records request in for Larry's files, asking for those specific records. And then they told me they didn't exist. Well, I knew they existed because they had already provided them to someone else. So we ended up in court um, in a mandamus action. And um, sure enough, the records, they could find the records. All of a sudden, the records disappeared in Cleveland, which is really common. So people who um, have ever tried to get records from Cleveland and East Cleveland would know it's very common that you, they can't find them. They cannot find those records. So, um, you know, we looked at the records that we did have. Um, and then, you know, a series of events occurred over probably a three month period of time that made that was kind of like the, the proverbial string that, um, you know, the thread hanging from the hem. And so you pull it and now everything starts to come apart. So we started asking for more records for more persons. Um, DeMarco Johnson, who was the officer who uh, came on Vincent in the video, mm -hmm. um, he had been in Cleveland. Um, he had gone to the Ohio Peace Officer, no, I'm sorry, the uh, Ohio Highway uh, Patrol, and he had become uh, licensed to be, uh, certified, I'm sorry, to be a, a trooper. And so he went to Cleveland, and even though he had 900, I think it was like 900 or maybe 1,000 hours of training, Cleveland still required him to go through their basic training. So he had like two years of training from, you know, for trooper training as well as community policing. So he didn't stay in Cleveland either. He left and went to East Cleveland. I think he had been in East Cleveland and he came back. He left Cleveland and went back. So, of course, there were red flags all over the place trying to figure out why are these guys leaving, like, potentially $100,000 a year? Because once they do overtime, court cases, basketball games, security, you know, these guys can make really good money, um, which is, you know, something I think we can talk about later 
is that we have the most uneducated people in this in, in the state of Ohio earning a hundred thousand dollars a year in compensation to be peace officers, and that is just amazing. People who don't have high school diplomas or um, any you know higher education, they're making really good money. Um, I worry less about like that people with that level of, of education are, are making more money than other than the amount of that they have so much power. And th- that's my whole point is that yeah. they're making the money, they have the power, and it's almost it, it's, it's virtually impossible to hold them accountable. Well, I, I, a really interesting thing, I remember having a conversation with um, a woman who's trying to help her, her son out of a wrongful um, arrest out of Niles. And she was talking about, you know, and she's navigating the legal system and, and getting in, learning how, how it is to deal with, with police um, when they're sticking to their guns and they're wrong. But getting into it, she, she said, like, the, a lot of them, they're, yeah, like you said, not educated. These departments, they do screen. Like, they don't want you, if, to a certain degree, if you're a critical thinker. Exactly. Um, and, or, or, and don't have certain, I don't know, tendencies or, or, or fit a psychological profile. But also, a lot of them come from these backgrounds. So it's like, this is their key to a middle-class life. Right. And now the job... So it's like if you are the good apple in a barrel of bad ones or whatever, but now like, well, your whole like life, you have a mortgage based on making $100,000 a year, you're trapped, you know, like as far as not giving these people excuses for why they will condone it. But it's like, I, there's so many reasons why, yeah, just the whole setup, the demographic setup, the economic setup. Right. Right. Um, I think it's even deeper than that because I've had this conversation probably twice the past week. Um, is that when you go back and you look in the, at the chiefs of police, the people mm-hmm. who are serving as chiefs of police, they came into policing when there was no requirement to have a high school diploma. So when you go look at these guys' records, they literally did not maybe get out of 10th grade, ninth or 10th grade. So they didn't even get to high school to get, um, you know, the political aspects and understanding the Constitution. And so, and they never upgraded. They never went and had, you know, to, uh, to go to college to do a first year um, program or to get a GED um, where they had to take a test, you know, and, and determine what their actual grade level was. So now those people who were grandfathered into the system before they were required to have a high school diploma, and that's only about maybe a, a decade, if that long, um, in Ohio that that changed. You know, you have people who are making that good money, living in a really good lifestyle, who really are still level on the level of a 10th or 11th grade kid. So you're putting guns in their hands. You're putting, um, you know, free gas and free cars <laughs> in their hands, um, especially in the case of East Cleveland. Um, these guys are not they're not um, they're not beyond high school mentality. And so and, and now we also live in the age of um technology where you have video games like Grand Theft Auto, you know, and these guys, you know, I think Cleveland.com just did a story on them playing heavy metal music and chasing someone and screaming, um, you know, while they're driving, you know, that's a kid. That's not an adult. You know, and we have officers like uh, um, Marche, Joseph Marche, who comes from Blackwater. Right. And and there is a real... um, military to police pipeline correct and i tell you one thing i don't think ever gets really looked at is 
how many of these guys are adrenaline junkies? Exactly. Like, that's a drug. It is. And, it, and, it and is. like, if you're, like, that's what you love is yes. the action and being in it, and that's what you love about being a cop, right. then we need to look at that. Exactly. And and you see that with the majority of the East Cleveland Police Department. They're all adrenaline junkies. Um, David Semperman, who served as the chief of police in Amsterdam, because he was part of this when we did the research. Um, David Semperman was also, I think, an auxiliary officer in East Cleveland. But he has a long history of malfeasance and misconduct. Like, he really should have went to jail, um, and they covered it. They covered him up. Um, I think it was in New Philadelphia, if my memory serves me correctly. But there are, are record, uh, records of him um, being in brand-new police cars and chasing people on a motorcycle in the dark on backwoods roads and you know dispatchers telling him stop don't don't chase that car don't chase the bike stop chasing them and he still chases the motorcycle the motorcycle was going through this backwoods and he does not realize that the road is out and the car crashes upside down into a little ravine bank brand new vehicle in this little municipality so you see a lot of this misconduct it's a lot of property destruction that occurs from people who have worked, you know, in other departments that came into East Cleveland that another department will look at and say, no, 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 we can't have you crashing um, vehicles. Um, there are incident reports where they leave uh, loaded shotguns unsecured in their vehicles wide open. Um, there's all kind of malfeasance and misconduct that you see in their, their jackets from other departments before they get to EC. Yeah, and it seems there's a real, like you say, there, East Cleveland is the, the last stop, the island of misfit toys, but there's a real shuffling yes. going on of like, oh, this officer is, let's move him around, and it has, you know, the vibes of like the, the Catholic Church. Right. Um, you know, I think one thing is that, you, because you have police policing themselves, and so even at the state level, you have police policing themselves. And so there's really no oversight. There's no state database to track them. There is no state database um, to make a determination on who's actually compliant with training, mandated training, um, and who's in legal cease function. There's nothing there. Um, something as simple as a spreadsheet could track this, okay? Yeah, but do you want to stop and break, break down like... This this was one of the wildest things I remember learning from you is so there's this entity called the Ohio Police Peace Officers Training Academy right slash commission um, yeah the the former executive director um, he 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 refers it to as Opata Opatsi um, and so I'm trying to learn how to say that the way he says it. But, you know, okay, so the, the state of Ohio, our legislation um, since 1966, because I did go to, to case and I pulled all the legislation associated with um, peace officers to get a really good idea of what the requirements were and how they developed over the course of, because I'm 55, so 55 years, okay, of legislation governing um, peace officers and troopers in the state of Ohio. And so what I found is that um, it's grown a lot. I mean, it really has where the state legislatures have tried to put things in place, but those things are not being adhered to by, by, the, um, by Opata Opatsi. They're not adhering to what the law says. And so 
Um, they are supposed to require peace officers and troopers to turn in their training certificates within 30 days of completion to get credit for training and for reimbursement funding. So somewhere back in 2004, 2005, um, the chiefs of associations got together and they lobbied the state legislature to do what no other organization or professional um, con, you know, professional uh, uh, background uh, in terms of like, you know, having a licensure or certification has ever done. They were able to lobby our state legislature to set aside funding for reimbursement for them to take the training. And so um, the and so so the legislature said, okay, fine, we will give you the money to take the training, um, but we're going to dictate what that training is and how that money can be spent. We're going to dictate um, the reimbursement of funding. So in 2006, legislation passed, and the legislation um, stated that they, they changed the term from in-service training to continued professional training, trying to give peace officers a little bit more professionalism in terms of you know their training and the way that they're viewed. As they wanted them to be more professional in their conduct. So continued professional training came with a hitch. You guys take specific areas of training and we will give you reimbursement funding for it. And so this kind of actually gets really interesting and I haven't shared this with you. Um, but over the years, they would send in an Excel spreadsheet and it would say yes or no next to a, a peace officer's name as to whether or not they took the training. And then a standard operating procedure uh, was to send a what's called a cease function letter to the officer, to the to the mayor, to the city and the, prosec the, the county prosecutor um, and, and the chief of police to say this person is prohibited from engaging in law enforcement. He is no longer a police officer. He must take the mandated training. Um, depending on how long it's been, he might have to take what's called a refresher course as well as the current mandates. Um, and if it's been longer than three years, they're supposed to go back to basic training. So what we found is that the state never audited once they started sending out all this money. Like the, the millions of dollars was sent out to agencies that never took the training, like nothing, nothing. Um, and so around the same time, um, the state started allowing um, peace officers to take online courses. Um, a, an opinion was written by former Attorney General Betty Montgomery and because the question was asked, can we use VHS tapes? You know, this was kind of far back. So <clears throat> she said, yeah, you can use all the technology you want to, but when it comes to the in-service training, the specialized training, it must be done in a classroom setting with a certified instructor. And so hers is a standing opinion. It's never changed. It's consistent with the current rules and laws governing peace officers. And so what we found is that when they turn in these attestation sheets with those rosters, those Excel spreadsheets at the first of the year to OPATA, um, they stayed on there. There's a line that says they, that they attest that they took other than online courses to meet the statutory mandates. And what we found is that agencies weren't doing that. They were not taking the in-house with a certified instructor for specific courses, such as domestic violence, trauma-informed policing, um, missing children, missing persons, um, fraud, fraud on senior citizens. There are, these, are, these are courses that they take in basic training that are supposed to be continued training, legal updates, 
um, mental health crisis evaluation, you know, for them to be able to help people when they um, go into a mental crisis instead of them shooting them or, or putting them in a chokehold like Tanisha Anderson and killing her. Um, these are trainings that they were mandated by law to have. And if they did not have those trainings, they were to cease functioning in law enforcement. So that was the caveat that the legislation put in there. The problem that the state did not do was the state did not put in the legislation which held them criminally liable for continuing to engage in law enforcement. So these guys are just, they're just out there. They're just doing whatever they want to do because no one's tracking them. They're doing whatever they want to do. Nobody's stopping them. And so the state has has not done anything to, um, you know, curb this conduct. And so a lot of these guys just jump around from department to department to department. So it's hard to track them. It's very difficult to track them. So the whole we, and the whole self-reporting aspect of it, I think, is what blows my mind is that you have, you know, I don't know how it has. How does it work in other professions? Like as far as like you said, like if we compare this to you're, you're getting your licensure as a nurse or a doctor right. or a lawyer, um, there's there, you know, you go through a training and, and, and the, the, the certifying body should be able to be like, yeah, here's everything we exactly. checked and made sure we can give you everything. <laughs> right. But when you want to find out about this officer, you've got to go back to the department, right? And Correct. find out what they gave Opata. And Opata's just like, well, they just gave us a spreadsheet where they checked off Correct. yes. Correct. And that's because Opata is not enforcing. Yeah. Um, they're not enforcing the sections of the administrative code which require them to turn those certificates in. Um, they are relying on one section of the code which says that the records have to be kept at the, the agency. Um, but in order to get credit for the training, and when you're reading the administrative code, um, for them to get credit for the training, to actually be considered, yes, I took this training, um, and for them to get reimbursement funding, they are supposed to turn in those certificates um, within 30 days of completion or they don't get credit and they should not get reimbursement. So basically. So we have um, so we have two big things right just right here from this point. We have um, the fact that they are claiming to take training and not, which is problematic and that they're not as well trained. Correct. They should know this stuff, but also that they are just using it as an excuse to like get more money. Yeah, and, and, and the question is, what are they doing with this money? Because the code also states that it is to go into its uh, into a, a, a fund that is not to be commingled with any other accounts, um, and the money is supposed to be um, only allocated for continued professional training. And so what I found is, because you know I love putting out public records requests, I have nothing else to do with my life, um, I've put out records requests asking for those accounts and no one has these accounts set up. Like, so they're getting reimbursement funding. It's being commingled and there's no way to track the allocation of those funds. So that comes back to, and you know, this is something we're going to be sending to our state auditor. The state auditor had a duty to oversight where that money went to and to make sure that money was being used appropriately before they sent that money out. Um, they, they had a duty to investigate and to audit OPATA, which kind of brings us to what happened earlier. I think it was earlier this year. Um, I was sent a, a email saying, Mariah, you have to see this. And so when I opened it, my mouth dropped open. The um, state of Ohio auditor 
uh, conducted with a public, produced a public interest report because they were unable to audit Opata. And the reason they were unable to audit Opata is because Opata never tracked the funds that they sent out to agencies. And so there's $24 million missing from Opata. $24 million missing. Now, if I, you know, if I'm not mistaken, that money should be somewhere. It should be, you, you, how do you misplace $24 million? So and this report has gone largely unnoticed by unnoticed. anyone in the press. Yes, there, yes. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen a story on this. I'll send it to you so that you can see it. I have it. the report. Oh, no, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, no, yeah, I'm letting, I'm letting you roll, uh, but I'm not, okay. I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> So, I'm trying not to feign that I'm like, oh, really? really? I didn't right. know that. No, I, I, so, I'm, I'm up to date on that. You know, if you read this report, if the public reads this report, it was not put out as an audit. It was put out as a public interest report, which I think is so fraudulent and the transparency is not there. And that's a problem for me because the auditor's office at this juncture, um, the, you know, they stated that the every department was supposed to get $100 for every peace officer who completed training. But OPADA was only giving them $20, and in some instances, $80 for every officer. So what happened to the difference? What happened to the difference in that? You know, If they submitted $80 or they submitted $20, what happened to the difference of that money? That money is not accounted for. And most, most police, peace officers don't even know they were entitled to get that money. So they're missing money. They didn't, who's got the money? Where's the money? Um, and so, you know, when you look at that report, it's eye-opening. Um, so the person that actually sent it to me said, Mariah, you know, they're trying to protect Opata. I said, no, they're trying to protect Dave Yost because this happened under Dave Yost's watch when he was the auditor of the state of Ohio. It was his job, um, just like it was his job to oversight the city of East Cleveland, who was in fiscal emergency. He never oversighted them to make a determination on whether or not they have been compliant with the uh, with the fiscal uh, emergency requirements to, for them to even continue being a municipality. Um, yeah, I mean, isn't it like like East Cleveland's reached a point where it's like it just can't. It doesn't matter if if you know the Belmonte family sues and and wins, like there's no money. For well, like, or, like they're, I mean, like paying out like lawsuits or things like that. I'm just wondering, like, to like. If they, you reach a point like that, yeah, why hasn't there been like, okay, we need to completely audit your police department and maybe replace everyone or, or figure out what's going on? So that kind of brings us up into the new research that we're doing right now um, because we've seen these stories. We've seen that they don't have the money. Um, and so I requested, because I know they got like $3.5 million last year in stimulus CARES funding. And so um, it's interesting because the city prosecutor, quote, retired um, on, I think it was July 2nd. Oh, so are you going to get into like, because when I was doing the research on the Belmonte story and watching a lot of city council meetings, I saw there was a lot of like hard questions going at the mayor about like this money and that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because so, I was like, I don't know what's going on, but exactly. I don't have time to really look into it. <laughs> no, so we're actually looking into it because a couple of the council people, you know, they, they this is what they do. They call me and they say, Mariah, we can't get this and we need you to help us. And so I do this. I, I try to get the records. And trust me, I really go through um, Hades to try to get these records. So, ooh, excuse me. So the, the, the city prosecutor went on vacation for these two months. Um, that she went, uh, she retired, 
and we obtained the payroll records and saw that she had got a $15,000 separation pay. And um, of course, that was a huge red flag because she's only been there a couple of years. And looking at, yeah, and so looking at the payroll stub, the payroll stub gives the comp time and the regular time and all that kind of good stuff and even some hazard pay, it doesn't equal $15,000. So now we're asking questions because council did not, they did not take it to council to get approval to give this money to the city prosecutor. And anything over $10,000 must be approved by city council per the, 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 um, the charter. And so that's been a huge issue is that the mayor is just doling out all this money and he's not providing council with the records and the information to support who's he, who he's giving the money to. So of course I asked for the, um, the year to date expense reports because you know some people don't know this about me but um the way i put myself through school and raised my kids and went through law school was that i went um i had my own bookkeeping accounting service and so i have years and years of experience which really helps me um when in terms of looking for records and you know trying to piecemeal information together and so i asked for the um the uh, expense report you know um the year-to-date expense report to see how much money has gone out and where it's gone to. And I thought it was utterly amazing that um, the city of East Cleveland has put out $4.2 million for that police department, like for their salaries, their health care, guns, cars. I think they paid $177,000 just this year alone in crashed vehicles. And so I'm looking at this report and my mouth is just wide open because I'm seeing expenses like $220,000 in grass cutting for the law department and $50,000 in phone bills for the, for the law department. So like this is insane. Like th- I'm looking at these numbers and so of course I put in and I asked oh I want to see the I want to see the um the vendor invoices i want to see the the phone bills like who are they talking to pakistan well, yeah, yeah i was just gonna say like in this day and age how how are you spending like long distance charges is that a thing i don't international know national charges yeah but what is the easy thing like what are they doing and that's what i'm saying are they talking to pakistan every day we like, need to consult with the the paris police exactly is, you know <laughs> so I, I can't see a fifty thousand dollar phone bill for um, you know these certain departments, and so I'm looking at this expenditure report, and I send, and I said, "Hey, I want these records," and they're telling me, "Oh no, we're not going to give you these records. There's too many of them." I said, "Fine, they put them on the table. I'll be there to look at them. You know, if you you feel that there are too many to co- to copy, you know, I'll be there. No, 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 you can't come in and look at these records. So of course, you know me, I filed a mandamus action because we're going to get those records. We want to see where this money was allocated to. But here's what's interesting." Uh, last year, they gave $3.5 million on top of the $4.5 million to the police department. Yes. And so I'm asking, like, don't tell me you don't have money. You have money because you're allocating it to a department who's costing you millions of dollars in property damages and loss to life. And every single lawsuit that is going through the courts right now is for the police department. Or are like, they trying to do they try and say like oh well the lawsuit money can only come out of this bucket and that's empty because we put all the money in the police bucket like well, or it, it's, I mean like yeah that's where I'm just when it, when it, when a city gets sued and is like you know told you have to pay that um, does the city the one who decides well we don't have the but like this budget part is untouchable or whatever well like, council doesn't know because council has not been given access to what's going on in terms of the finance department mm-hmm. Mayor King 
ordered every department not to provide any information to the city to the city council the elected legislative body that's the one who's supposed to be in charge of the budget how exactly is and he's ordered them not to do it so when i saw you tell you malfeasance there's malfeasance going on um and you know my daddy didn't cuss my daddy never cussed so my daddy would say somebody's having intercourse now he's, with the money he's <laughs> so there he's currently up for re-election and since he won the primary is he pretty much coasting in or is, is so so here's here's our issue with that since you brought that up here's our issue with that the city charter requires that it be a partisan race and when you read the charter it clearly says that um you know whoever runs the race their name has to be uh, next to their name on the ballot it has to be their party affiliation so when you go on to the reading the rest of it um is section 115 section h of the charter it says that the top two people who emerge from the primary election are supposed to go to the um, to the general election. It's very clear. There's nothing ambiguous about it. It does not say if it's from a different party or the top two people. You know, it says it literally says the top two people who emerge from the primary is to go to the general election. So the Board of Elections in Cuyahoga County has been running these races in East Cleveland with only one person coming out of the primary. So Juanita Gowdy, who came in second, she filed a mandamus action in the 8th District Court of Appeals stating that the language says two people are supposed to go to the primary and there's nothing ambiguous about it. And so the county prosecutor objected and said, no, 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 just let Brandon King go forward. Willa Hemmings, who serves as the law director in East Cleveland, she filed the same thing, dismissed this, and the court dismissed it. I have not had an opportunity to read um, the, the language of the court's decision other than what I was told because someone else did read it and called me, um, that you know it's a partisan race. But there's no exclusionary language in the charter. There's nothing that says only one person should emerge. So when I say that there's some corruption that's going on and they're allowing this corruption to go on um, and keep certain people in, in those positions um, without any accountability, it's concerning and it's damaging to, um, it's damaging to suppression right. You know, it's, it's a voter suppression right issue. And it's damaging to democracy. It's damaging to the residents. And I think the residents have kind of given up. So yes, he's going to breeze right on through to the general election by himself on the ballot um, in spite of the language of the city charter. Okay. Um, it's problematic. It's very problematic. I have not had an opportunity, like I said, to read um, the uh, language of what the court's ruling was. And so, you know, I did tell Juanita Gowdy and I did tell Corrine Stevenson that now you have something that you can base it on because no one's ever made a decision concerning this before because it had never been challenged before. But now you have something that you can look at. So um, after we get our attorneys to look at this and kind of go through it, We'll figure out whether or not it's something that should be appealed at the uh, the Ohio Supreme Court level or if it's something that needs to be addressed through the city charter. Yeah, that's really disappointing. And Juanita Gowdy is absolutely, you know, someone who when I'm, I'm reviewing city council footage, she's, you know, she's the one up there calling out like McDonald. Exactly. To really be speaking for the community. Exactly. Um, and, and I appreciate her presence on council a lot. And I don't know that the rest of the councilors <laughs> and the mayor do. Well, Juanita um, was one of the initial residents before she was elected to office that had engaged me that, you know, she and Justin Anderson had engaged me. 
um, because of their concerns about Larry McDonald. So, she, you know, she's been looking at Larry McDonald for a very long time and his misconduct, and she's been very outspoken concerning it. Um, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, such an in-depth corrupt city. Um, and, and I've said to lawyers who say, well, we can't get any money. I said, well, the money is there. I just want you to money know the money is there. The money is there. The money is being misallocated. And because the state of Ohio, the auditor's office, is not doing an audit, a complete and thorough audit of that um, of the finances of the city, they're able to misallocate these funds. These funds are out there. And, I mean, it's in East Cleveland. They're making good money. I mean, Think about it, $4.5 million for the police department, $4.5 million with residency at what, like minimal amounts of people. In fact, their department is too large, to be honest with you. Um, I've, I've pulled the numbers of um, the demographics in terms of residency and um, similar, you know, cities and how many officers should be there per capita. And so I think they have 40 to 50 people that they keep on their roster working in East Cleveland when they shouldn't have any more than 24. So there's there's a huge, huge issue of, again, no oversight from the state. Um, you know, we found records um, of, because we, we go through incident reports and we look at those incident reports and we look at the current agency roster and we often, this is not uncommon with East Cleveland, we quite often find people working in East Cleveland in law enforcement who have no legal appointment from the state of Ohio to be there. And Larry is one of those people. So in 2000. 18, 2018, um, Larry was had come back, I think, in October of 2017 to East Cleveland. Larry never got an appointment. When he came back to work, they just said, put him back on the payroll, okay? An um, appointment being, a, who who would do the appointment? The state of Ohio would. Yeah. So what happens is, according to the law, they, and this is the revised code, within 10 days of a peace officer being hired, appointed, at an agency, by law, they are to turn in um, what's called an SF-400 form, an appointment form. They're to, to turn that in to the state of Ohio. So what they're supposed to do is the state is supposed to get this form, they're supposed to look at this form, and they're supposed to say, okay, this guy hasn't had an appointment in two years. He has to go back to, to refresher and take the current mandates before he can engage in law enforcement. So there's supposed to be a lot based off of these appointment forms. They never gave Larry an appointment form. To the state. They never so gave the state. by bypassing that, then the state can never look at it and say, you need to go through training again. Exactly. And and, and on top of it, um, he has no legal authority to be a police officer. Okay? So when we did our research and we're pulling these records, we're getting state records, we're getting records from Cleveland, we're getting records from, um, for, you know, multiple people that are engaging in law enforcement in East Cleveland, and we're seeing a really serious concerning pattern here. And so we saw that Larry did not have a uh, appointment to work in East Cleveland. And he'd been there for a year before we discovered that he didn't have an appointment. So every arrest that Larry made, every ticket that he wrote for that year is unlawful. And it, and people have the right, and a lot of people don't know this, you have the right to sue Larry directly because he did not have a legal appointment for working in East Cleveland. So I actually have the email where when we brought that out, that he didn't have an appointment, Michael Cardilli, the former chief of police, he sends an email to a pod and he says, hey, do you have Larry on a record for us? And they email him back and say no. And he'd been there for a year by the time this was figured out. 
So he knew he had not, he should have known he didn't send in an appointment form for Larry. So they, they, and this kind of brings us wrapping back See, this, to and this brings us back to like in my, in my piece, I went from like, well, the point where you identified the training, like right there. Right. Should have been at least taken off the force or like completely like, you exactly. know, re put through tra- all the training that he missed at Correct. the very least. Correct. But yeah, and then all these other things in that year where it's like he was on probation. It's like, why wasn't he fired at that point before he ever was on the street with Vincent that exactly. day? Exactly. But even further than that, he was never appointed. He never held and, appointment. And if that was n- noted and it's on the record, then there's no reason he should have continued from the moment it was called to their attention. Exactly. Um, and, and, and here's what's really interesting is that I saw Pata did not send the cease function letter to anyone but Larry and the chief of police. And normally on the bottom of the letters, they send them to the prosecutor, the chief of police, the mayor, to let everybody know that he's not supposed to be there. And so they didn't do that in this instance. They only sent it to Larry and the chief of police. And and by this time, there's a lot of conflict going on because um, by that time, we had already went public that they weren't police. And so now everybody's trying to put out some fires. They were not trying to um, feed into it. And so, you know, Larry has a cease function letter currently in his jacket, no reinstatement letter, which is required by law um, for him to have from the executive director showing that he is current with the mandates. Now, had Opata... Opata conducted a, a, a audit between 2015, 16, and 17 based off of our research. We sent the research to Opata. Um, Mary Davis, who was the executive director at the time, she felt it had merit because what we did was we went to every department that any of them ever worked at, and we got all the records, and we so we had a historical record of whether or not these peace officers had taken training. And so when we, we contacted her and we sent the information to her, she felt it had merit, and so she conducted an independent audit, but she only looked at the records for East Cleveland. She did not do what we did. We did a forensic examination. She did a, a, just a cursory uh, um review of their records and she found that they had not taken the training 2015 16 and 17 they had not taken the training and she required them to take um, to give back over ten thousand dollars in reimbursement funding now what i thought was interesting was that she didn't send out one cease function letter not one the only ones that went out um were when they turned in larry's appointment form and larry got the letter but when it came to the actual audit, they did not send out cease function letters. Joseph Marche had, what, four or five in his jacket that no reinstatement letter for over a 10-year period. And we found in his records that they did not tell the state that he had been there for, um, I think, five, five years when they told him he came back from Blackwater because he had been in East Cleveland, left, went to Blackwater, came back. And he had not, you know, at that time, he's supposed to go back to basic training and they were going to allow him just to take a refresher course to be reinstated, um, which is another issue that I have with Opata. Um, But you're talking about the state not enforcing the laws that are there. And then there are laws that need to be enacted. Now, out of what we've done, and I guess I can kind of give myself a little pat on the back, the revised code has been changed only about money, though, because that's all they care about is the money. OK, let's let's make it clear. It's all they cares about is the money. So before it was a basic bookkeeping um, 
uh, way for them to do uh, the uh, reimbursement funds. So basically, you turn in your your um, you, they were supposed to turn in their um, certificates every thirty days, um, which they weren't. And then at the end of the year, they supposed to turn in the CPT rosters with the attestation sheets. And so the certification officer is this is how simple this is supposed to be. The certification officer will look at the the Excel spreadsheet and say, officer friendly. Um, it says, yes, he took three hours of this, four hours of this, five of that. So then she would pull up his file and then she would see that they had submitted those records throughout the course of the year. And then she would check him off as being compliant. This is how it's supposed to operate. And then she would look at the next officer and say, well, I have no certificates for him. Send him a cease function letter. This is how it's supposed to operate, but they're not operating that way. And so... Now, and so what they would do is they would take the Excel spreadsheets, they would rubber stamp them, and it says, okay, 35 officers, this agency gets $10,000, cut them a check and send them the $10,000. Well, now, because of the work that we've done, um, even though Dave Yost has completely ignored our requests to meet with him, um, I guess he's pushed the legislature to change part of that legislation because now they have to apply for reimbursement funding and they have to provide evidence, invoices, to show that they actually took the in-class in, in um, uh, uh, courses, uh, continued professional training. Um, something we brought out. And that they paid for them. That the and money that they was actually spent, paid for them. Not like spent. we're going to give you the money. Well, yeah, just taking it on faith. Exactly. We're giving it to you at the beginning of the year. And exactly. And so now the law is requiring them to prove that they took the training if they're going to get the money. Now, here's what I see happening. I see a lot of these police chiefs in just saying, we're going to forego uh, applying for the reimbursement funding, which is going to create a huge mess because OPADA does not audit. So even though well, they... And we haven't even gotten into the fact that uh, during the pandemic, audit, uh, OPADA let go of a whole bunch of advanced training officers and now they outsource the training too, right? Correct. To, and to people who are, are on the board of OPADA or uh, OPOD-C <laughs> and own the companies that get no bid contracts to exactly. do the private companies that now get uh, re, uh, money to do the training that Opati used to do. Correct. So there's Correct. that's just that's a, another episode I think. <laughs> it is. And so, you know, and, and when you talk about that, so here was one of the things that we really brought out and we only brought it out to the Department of Justice as one of our concerns because we turned all this stuff over to the DOJ, you know, because I'm not just going to sit on this stuff and they can kill me and then DOJ don't know what happened to me. But we need we need DOJ to know what's happening. So because I've worked with the Department of Justice in the past, I often send them information when I come across it. And so one of the things that we brought out to, um, to the Department of Justice is that there are the, the training that we find is all based in firearms, which is not continued professional training. In fact, that falls under a whole different revised code. So, you know, they take a lot of firearm training. They take annual... East Cleveland does not do this, so I just want to make this clear. Um, annual gun requalifications is also a, a legal uh, uh, requirement for them to carry firearms. They don't take the annual gun requalifications. And so they're not supposed to be carrying a firearm. So along with them not having the continued professional training as required, they don't have annual gun requalifications. And, you know, and, and the city spends thousands and thousands of dollars on guns. Um, every person that is on the agency roster, so I want you to kind of get a picture of this. 
every person is on that agency roster has been assigned at least minimum five weapons. Five duty weapons. Yes. Yes. So the city, when I say the city has the money, the city is, you know, the city is expending money on weapons and bullets and other things which should be expended in other areas. Um, and, and I mean, yeah, and it just it reads, and this is what you see when you look at how what East Cleveland thinks their job is is they're an right. occupying force. They are. They are most certainly an. Yeah, and I think terrified terrorists. I you know like this was the thing you know not to just to step step off into a little quick tangent like that really bothered me like when I was just seeing like what the war in Iraq and Afghanistan was doing and then like yeah when stories about Blackwater would happen and I just saw like wait these people our soldiers are going over there they're they're doing all these things uh to learning to dehumanize people they're they're occupiers they're controlling a population (coughs) excuse me um but and then they come back here and, you know, now starting to see how much that has seeped into the police culture. Exactly. And it's it's really it's really terrifying, especially too the if like, you know, at least, you know, Chris, Chris McNeil's brought this up before uh, he was, you know, he was a soldier uh, is that at least over there they had rules of engagement. Exactly. But they also have which something someone said to me who has been in, in um, the military. We get hours and hours and hours of training to use military-grade equipment. Yeah. So when you have police departments, whether it's Cleveland or East Cleveland, and they get these hand-me-downs, they get yeah, they go and they to the auction, the government auction, and they purchase government-grade equipment, you know, um, military-grade equipment. And they bring it into the communities, and this is what terrifies me. And I say this all the time: you have people who have absolutely no training whatsoever to use military-grade weaponry. And you're putting it in their hands um, who have that mentality that you're talking about without even going over to Afghanistan and being programmed. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's even worse. Yeah, it's even worse because you have the guys who didn't go over there who probably fetishize being a soldier and and the violence and and, and, yeah, all of that. Right. And and wish they could do all the adrenaline things. They think war is this glorious thing, you know. Yeah, I think a lot of those guys are making up the police too. Oh, definitely. Probably more so than actual soldiers who turn around in some Yeah, because these guys didn't have the courage to go over and actually serve their country. You know, this is kind of something that they 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 came up. You know, hey, I can be a police officer and do this, um, and, and it comes from the, our society's culture of allowing police not to be accountable for their conduct. So you know, I can put on a gun and a badge and do whatever I want to do, um, and nobody's going to stop me. And so there's there's you know, it's terrifying. Yeah. It's terrifying. Well, then to you me. couple that with just the completely unreconciled history of what police are. Correct. And that like. That's that's the source of so many, you know, so many issues, I think, in this country is like we we are not we do not reconcile. We do not have moments where we just, you know, collectively as a nation stop and say, hey, we really fucked this up. (laughs) We really did this, you know, whether it's, you know, all the institutional things that black people have done from the founding of this country all the way through. Right. Um, and that persists today, just the reckoning. Right. So that we're all living in the same reality and then we can like, okay, so we need to fix that, right? It's, we just keep moving on and think, well, let's bandage. And act like it never happened. Yeah, right. Like, but we could change, like that's, you know, why 
police abolition, you know, as, as scary as the term as people is. It's just like, look, the whole concept, what it started as, right. police as a word. Right. Yeah, go back to it. And that's where, you know, you're saying, we were talking about before we got started, right. it's like a problem in this country is, you know, people not thinking critically, not being curious enough. And yeah, it's, it's like... They think police abolition and there's the shorthand in their brain. Well, this is what I think police should right. be. And like, you know, the things you th- that a lot of people think police should be. Yeah, we need that. We do need people to solve actual crimes. Exactly. And we do need people who are trained to properly use violence when it is necessary exactly. to stop a dangerous situation. Right. We need those individuals. in, But that is, we don't need this force where that's their answer to everything. Exactly. And they're out there all the time and it's, they're untrained and they're uneducated right. and they're cultivated to be, to follow orders and to not turn on, you know, anyone behind that blue line. And my God, the consequences you suffer well, if you do. I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back to yeah, a couple of things. Yeah. I'm going to circle back to a couple of things. So when we turned in our concerns to the Department of Justice, one of the things that we were really concerned about was that OPADA has created a statewide culture of unconstitutional policing. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, you tell the officers, peace officers, they have to take an hour of domestic violence by a certified instructor, but nobody is certified to teach it. So where do they get it from? So you create an unconscious, he automatically goes into cease function. Once he does not have access to a certified instructor to teach him about domestic Setting violence. Setting him up to fail. You're, right. I mean, he automatically goes into cease function. And so that was a huge concern for us because they're not certifying people to actually take these continuing professional training. And so we turned that over to the Department of Justice. Well, now it's interesting because we didn't talk about that publicly. That was something we, we gave to the Department of Justice as one of our concerns. And what we found is that now Dave Yost is asking any peace officer in the state of Ohio who's interested in getting certified in those continued professional training areas to contact OPADA so they can train them to be instructors. Now, you're telling me nobody figured this out back in 2006 or 2007 when this law was instituted? Um, you know, and in the defense of our state legislatures over the past 20 years, they try to change the mentality of the police department by changing the terms, the language of policing by no longer calling them police. Now, I want you to understand something. There is not one time in our administrative and revised codes where they're called police. They're called peace officers or troopers. And so what is a peace officer in your mind when you hear it is someone who comes to keep the peace. Your job is to make sure that there's safety going on. Policing means exactly what it is. Abolish the police, <laughs> establish the peace. Exactly. You know, that's, yeah, we, I, that's some Dennis Kucinich shit, like where he, <laughs> he wanted to have the Department of Peace. Okay. Yeah, like, so, yeah, peace officer. It's like, I, I do really appreciate, I never really thought about like, like there was, that in, when it's if it's in the law like that, there is deliberation and care. Exactly. Like, this is what this role is. It's so, and and they, they wanted to impart it. But remember what I said. They grandfathered police into this. And when they grandfathered police into this, they grandfathered in the policing mentality. And so nothing has changed because those same people who came in with no education, no degree. And the no legacy. Nothing, 
the legacy is the real problem here because everyone everyone who knows this region or has followed like politics and in all of these counties knows like the problems with like you know the, the racist like you know clan member exactly and, and and then also uh the mob control right um and and they corrupted so many city governments so many police departments right and those police departments you know like they their kids are now the police chief exactly or they're in that department or another department exactly. like you said they all kind of move around and how many officers in east cleveland or even live in or close to east cleveland exactly but they they come from these areas where they are legacy of this is the way policing is and right. we don't need to be told how to let me tell you how to do it right and, and those areas that you're talking about where they're coming from, they're coming up from Southern Ohio. And what you'll find is that those little itty bitty tiny departments have no records of training whatsoever. Um, the state never looks at them. The state never makes sure that they take the training. And so they come, you know, they're making like $7 an hour down there. And so when they come up here, they can make $16 an hour in East Cleveland. Oh my God, I'm making three, two, three times the amount of money that I ever made before. And they're coming with that mentality. And you have to remember, like you said, when you talk about the Appalachians, you know, the mentality of the Appalachians of, of racism coming in um, to black communities. Um, Even just like the, the native white people that have lived in northeastern Ohio for exactly. generations. There's, exactly. It's that cold racism that's harder to see on its sleeve that we have in the north. Most certainly. Um, I always call it the undercurrent of racism because they don't show it. Um, and I, I was talking to someone um, in policing who he and I become very good friends through all of this. And I said to him, because he, he did not know. Now I want you to understand something. He did not know these problems existed because he's a white male and he had always had privilege through this. But once he met me and got into it and started seeing what was really going on, he has now turned total, you know, a, a total uh, uh, 180 on this on this whole subject matter. And so I'm saying to him that, you know, you have to understand something that when the abolitionists wanted to abolish slavery, they didn't want the blacks to come up here. That wasn't the goal at the end of the day. You know, you can free them and keep them down there, but don't come up here. But African-Americans thought since they fought for us, that's a good place for us to go to. So they migrated up to places like Cleveland and Chicago mm -hmm. and, and, and settled in those areas and they pushed them into certain areas so they couldn't come out. But the undercurrent of racism, even though they didn't come out and say it, they showed it through housing. They showed it through education. They showed it through, um, you know, the lack of giving, you know, services to um, African-American communities. So and it hasn't changed, you know, redlining, you know, none of this has changed. They've allowed some black people to move into certain areas that they feel maybe, you know, maybe we can accept them because they have an education and they drive a nice car. But overall, the, the mentality of treating African-Americans has not changed. It's the same. And that's the sad part about it, because especially when you're talking about the policing, um, you're talking about the peace officers. When they're engaging in black communities, their perception, because they never grew up around African-Americans, they never had friends who were African-Americans, they never had anything other than maybe what they saw on television tell them what African-Americans are or how they should be or how they, they, they perceive Which them. Which usually be an African-American getting arrested on the news exactly. every other day. So they come into a city like East Cleveland 
thinking this is how you treat all black people in this municipality. They are poor. They don't have rights. Don't, you know, you can treat them any kind of way you want to. And so you're seeing that. You're seeing that. And that, that very creates heavily a feedback there. loop where, I mean, because when, you know, people will rise to or fall to the level of your expectations. Correct. Correct. And so, you know, it's, it's sad because, you know, and, and I've, I've, I, th- I just have this whole theory about racism in itself. I believe it's a mental illness. I believe it has to fall somewhere between... A thought virus. Schiz- no, I think it falls somewhere between um, probably schizophrenia or um, bipolar disorder. There, It has to fall somewhere in that category. I think there's a bit of like narcissism peppered in there because there's... there's if you're racist and... Because and, as someone who doesn't... I'm like, I don't feel proud about anything. I'm proud of a lot of things about myself. The fact that I'm white, probably like I'm not proud of that. Well, when I can think about what it, I have all these things that I don't have to deal with because right. of it. And I hate it. But there are people who it's like they like oh I'm great because of this. But here's the difference between what you just said and what I'm saying. Yeah, there are white people who have in their minds that Mariah has big red lips. <laughs> okay, with really dark skin, um, you know, making me look like an ape. Okay, They're, and they see me, and that's what they think that I look like an ape. That I have, you know, that is something mental. There's something that's translating from the mind through the eyes and projecting this this illusion, and that has to be somewhere around the schizophrenia um, uh, phrase, you know, phase of of mental illness. Because you look at me and you don't see that, but the racist white guy might see that. Okay, he'll mm-hmm. say, "Man, she looks like an ape. You can't see them big, them big lips on her. My lips aren't big, but they perceive it because I'm an African American female. So that's why my thought is, my thought is this, and I've read on this um, concerning it. It's a huge conflict in the um, the the psychiatric uh, field. Is that there are psychiatrists who want to label racism as a mental illness, while others are like, "No, we can't do that." Um, but it is, it has to be, because when you see something that's not there, when your perception of something that is not a reality, there has to be some it's chemical imbalance. And not even a chemical, I mean, it can be evidence too of a, just a distorted mind. Like you can, you can be brought up abused in, in different ways and then you have to struggle with like right. fixing your mind. Right. And but, if you were, and I, you know, I wasn't raised race. I was raised just totally apolitical. No one talked about anything. <laughs> I had my best friends like growing up were, were two black kids. Okay. Um, or like we moved to my second town, you know, when I went to a Catholic school, <laughs> I think I, that was my, you know, first experience of racism being unaware of it as a child. We lived in um, Washington, D.C. My dad was in an Air Force base. Okay. And, um, my parents would not send me to the public schools. It was just like, and, I was, and they're like, so they sent me to a Catholic school because the, the public schools were all black. And I remember like at most I'd overhear something about my parents be like, well, we don't want you to be like the only black, white kid in a black school. You'll get beat up all the time or something. I'm like, all right. And so, yeah, and then we moved and then I was at a public school or whatever and it was fine and my two best friends were black. But right. I experienced that like just like, my parents weren't like telling us like there's a problem with black right. people or whatever. They're just like, well, we're just being practical, concerned people, annoyed bulls, you know, like. Right. But um, yeah, there. So this racism gets. But I knew kids later. Their parents actively told them like, 
you know, once I was hanging out with, uh, we slept out in the backyard in my friend's house. Like, white trash kid. It was like one of the only people who was nice to me. I was a new kid in town, in Youngstown. And this is where I first saw hardcore racism, too. Okay. I lived in Virginia, and I didn't see it as hard as wow. I did. It's when I moved to Youngstown. And my, you know, kid I was hanging out with, and we spent the night in his backyard. We woke up, and our shoes were gone. And his dad tells you, like, I'm sure it was those down the street. I saw them riding their bikes around. You guys should go outside with some bats, wait for them to ride by on their bikes, and hit them with their not see it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go home. <laughs> like, I, I was like, wow. Like, that was my first time seeing a grown adult. Right. Just saying, I was like, you're crazy. Like, as a kid, I was like, this is crazy. What are you talking about? But I, I never, you know, I felt so bad right. for my friend who I'm like, I just, I'm not hanging out with you anymore because right. I can't be around that. But he's trapped. He was right. raised to be that piece of shit. And it's sad because you just don't know. And, and I think, you know, especially with the Trump era, um, people were shocked at the racism that just started coming out of the woodworks. And I wasn't. I was not shocked because you have to remember that there are generations of grandparents who are still sitting around this, the table and they're having these discussions. Um, I was reading a book a couple of years ago. It was very disturbing to me. Um, I was reading up actually on the Brandon McLeod case, which you've heard me talk about a million and one times. And I, I kind of dug into the background of the three appellate judges who um, refused to hold these officers accountable. So one judge, um, she wrote, I think it was like a 50-page opinion on why these two, these officers should be held accountable for Brandon's death. And these three appellate judges wrote a 23-page opinion countering her 50-something pages, um, saying that they shouldn't be held accountable. So, of course, I started looking into the background. And so what I did was I pulled books from the main library to look at those areas when it came to racism. And it was disturbing to me. It was extremely disturbing to me. Um, but there was an incident of a black security guard who was watching at a factory. And um, he left work. He went to the bar. He had a few drinks. He was coming back. Um, no, I'm sorry. He was a factory worker and there was a white security, uh, uh, police officer. And so he stopped him for no reason and they got into a fight and ended up, you know, he, the, the officer took the gun out to shoot him and he took the gun away and he beat the officer and he shot the officer to protect himself from what was happening to him. And so he ran, he was afraid he ran. So they went and found him cause he actually, he killed the guy. So the, the white people went and found him. Um, and this is in Pennsylvania. So I went right on the borderline of Ohio and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they went and found him. Um, they, uh, they put him in jail. Um, a mob came in, took him out of jail. They took him out into the woods and they burned him alive. Okay. Like that's not sad enough and sick enough. When I tell you the, the story is that everyone came from all over to see this burning of this black man. They took parts of his body, his, his, his skeletal system, and they kept it as souvenirs. So that's, that just blew my mind when I read it because I thought to myself, those people are now grandparents and great-grandparents to the people that I go to school with, the people that I see in the legal community. So how many times that little Johnny that I know um, listen to his grandfather talk about seeing someone burned alive and that they have a piece of that bone of that person. 
what does that do? What, what, you know, how does that affect them? Well, it could take, it could go one of two directions. They can become completely appalled at the inhumane aspect of their grandparents and there's something wrong with you and I'm never going to be like you. This is not right. Or this is normal. This is normal behavior. You're going to be like, oh, maybe maybe there is something to this racism. Because exactly. my granddad was such a good guy. Exactly. Now, there's a lot of people I know like that, too. Like, they have wonderful parents who, you know, are stable, take them out and do things with them. They're engaged. They're caring. They've been nothing but, like, helpful. Right. But then they just pass on poison that's, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a real... One of the problems in this country, is too, is how... Well, like I said, we don't reconcile a lot of these issues. We don't deal with the fact that we're, we're living inside the legacies of these things. Right. But also, we, with policies, too, it's like there's people who come forward with these awful racist policies or based on predators. Like, you know, like how, how welfare was talked about in the 80s and right. things like that. And they put out these, these false premises of, of who's getting welfare and what actually benefits and things like that. I remember that. And they, they never fully get repudiated, you know. Exactly. And there's so many people, like, in the media and, of course, in, in politics who are will just perpetuate the lie because they benefit off of exactly. it. Exactly. And that's how they want things to be. But we never, like, solve these things. So people just go on believing it and... Maybe we we get enough people to force a policy in and change it to, to fix the thing, but there's still all these people with these like just wrong beliefs, and right. we just have to like, well, we're just gonna have to keep winning. It's like when when do we ever convince anybody of anything? Well, you know, I think it, that kind of brings just, us back to the comments you were telling me about on your video um, concerning Vincent, and you said one person commented, said, "Yeah, but he had a gun." <laughs> Like, oh, he, oh, he was running and he had a gun and a story. Okay. Like, I don't care what happened to him. Exactly. Um, and, and, and you see that a lot in the news feeds. You see it a lot. Well, he had a gun and that justifies him being shot in the back of the head. Um, you know, it, with, with not even looking at your presentation of what happened. Um, and by the way, you did an excellent job um, doing it very tastefully, um, very respectful to the family as well. Um, being able to, to, to point out, you know, so many aspects of what happened that day. Um, looking at the video and seeing DeMarco Johnson is the only person in the entire uh, uh, area who's like, we've got to get this kid to the hospital. We've got to get, you know, we've got to get him aid. Like, come on, like. What do I hear over? The, what do I keep hearing over the 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 the, the, the talkies during that time? It's like, hey, we need more crime scene tape. Get it? We need crime scene tape. Like right, there was like, a lot of concern about where the crime scene tape. Like, no, yeah. and everyone's just standing around like, oh, you got it. He, he, He's like, where's the buck board? Where's the buck board? Get. Where's the? Why don't you have the bug board? One of the EMS too. When he runs up and he says, like, "Oh yeah, we need this," and the other guy's like, "Seriously?" So one of them says something like, "Seriously?" He's like, "Yeah, he's got a pulse and he's breathing." Yeah, it's like you're looking at this. You know, if, so, if people who have two licks of sense actually take the time to look at this and see what's going on, you should be as appalled at what happened to Vincent Belmonte as people were that happened to um, George Floyd. Um, this is appalling. This was a child. Okay, he was a child. Um, he did not deserve to be shot in the back of the head. Um, he had done nothing. In fact, you know, and we're going to talk about Larry just a little bit more too. Larry has 
a reputation for chasing people with no probable cause whatsoever. So it's not uncommon to hear that Larry has chased someone and other people in East Cleveland have chased someone with no probable cause. You got dark windows, I'm going to chase you. <laughs> you know, um, that's insane. It's just insane what's going on in that city. And so you look at what happened that particular day. And I think you heard this too, when they kept saying to him, why are we chasing this car? And, you know, and I think it was him that, that came over and said, I think it's the car that Johnson was looking for earlier yeah. or something to that effect. And after the fact, they said the, in, in, the pursuit was initiated because he was traveling at a high rate of speed. And that's when they ran it and said the plates didn't match or something. But that, Which again, is that's common. after the fact. But yeah. I, I'm going to tell you something. I can't tell you how many incident reports I pull where East Cleveland states in their reports that the plates don't match the vehicles. Like, everybody just puts a bad plate on their car and drives through East Cleveland just to see if they're going to get caught. Like, this is insane. It's just absolutely insane. Um, you know, there's an incident where we have evidence that the, the, the plates on the vehicle belonged to the vehicle and they wrote the incident report stating, and this is Larry's ticket, by the way, I just want you to know that. Larry wrote this ticket saying it was fictitious plates and he put the actual plate number on the ticket. But in the police report, there are th literally three other plates that were supposed to be the fictitious plates assigned to that, that car. So you see that they use, you know, they use these, little insane methods to run after people, chase people. So in, de in, in Vincent's defense, knowing he's going through East Cleveland, knowing the reputation of the East Cleveland Police Department, he doesn't know why they're chasing him. Like, I didn't do anything. I'm just driving and I'm not doing anything. Why is he chasing me? Of course he would run in fear. And when the car crashed, he and two or three other people that were in the vehicle, they all jumped out and ran because they know that East Cleveland has a reputation of doing things to you that is they're never held accountable for. Like, you're, yeah, in that moment, that's the thing I don't, I, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, it's hard to put in my video, but I certainly consider is like, well, they're running because they may well know who Larry McDonald is. Most certainly. And, and. Yeah, and, and you're faced with that split-second decision of realizing I'm, you know, if, if I let this department get me, best-case scenario, they're going to do a real dirty case on me. Exactly, because that's what they do. Um, and then there are incidents. We have people who have come to us and said, you know, yeah, I had drugs on me. Yeah, I had a gun on me. They pulled me over, and for me not to catch a case... They made me sign my car over to them. So I had to call. Civil forfeitures? It's not even a civil forfeiture. No. It's yeah. not. Because you got to go to court to get a yeah, civil forfeiture. Yeah, yeah. These, these people are collecting drug dealers' cars so that they don't go to jail. You know, basically a bribe. It, it, it's pretty much yeah. Okay. Give give me the title to your car and walk home. You know, and that's what they're doing. They're taking it. So like, I'm just totally waiting for the feds to come in and do some kind of research on how many yeah. vehicles have been obtained through um, unlawful civil forfeiture. Um, these they're not because it's not going through the courts. And so there are some people that have gone to jail after they gave the title to the vehicle, signed the titles over to them. You know. I, I just, you know, I'm I'm disturbed to, at what's going on in East Cleveland. I'm disturbed that our attorney general, our our county prosecutor, I'm disturbed that you know the uh, the governor, 
um, have not moved on to protect the poor residents of East Cleveland and people who travel through East Cleveland. I'm disturbed. I'm absolutely disturbed. I'm even more disturbed. And I've said this and I've said this publicly before, so it's nothing new when people hear me say it again. I'm more disturbed that there are two black females who are over the law department in the city of East Cleveland that are watching a predominantly white police department terrorize a black community. Like there is no loyalty to their own people that they are not looking out to ensure um, that public safety. And, and, and here's the most interesting thing, because most people don't even look at it from this perspective, but I'm gonna throw this out there. They don't care if they live or die because they're not trained. And so when th with them not being trained, they don't even care if the, these people who are unlawfully engaging in law enforcement, they don't care if they get killed either. So what, whatever happens, happens. That mentality is so dangerous to society. Um, you know, and, and I've said this to a couple of people, if Larry McDonald had been killed that day, I would still be fighting this issue because Larry McDonald is not trained and he was sent out there with no training. He's out there now with no training. His life is constantly in jeopardy, whether he thinks it is or not, because he doesn't have the, um, professional training that he needs to conduct the job that he has been hired to do. It. His life is in danger. Every person on that department who has not had training, their lives are in danger because they don't have what they need to process and function in situations. Like you said, they pull out their guns and start shooting. Boom, 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 because that's all they can do. They are in fear of their lives. But if you had the proper training, you would be able to assess all situations individually, not lump them together and make everybody a threat and and start shooting okay so this is not just a a public safety issue the people who are unlawfully engaging their lives are in danger too and you have a judge you have a county prosecutor you have a city prosecutor or a city law director you have an attorney general and you have a governor who have not looked out for their safety as well so i can i can i can ride both sides of this okay um i can be impartial to it and unbiased to it because I've looked at it. I've grown a lot in the past couple of years in looking at what's going on. And it's not fair to peace officers who are actually taking the training. There are peace officers who are actually taking the mandated training and they're finding ways to get the training. They're going to basic training academies to get the training. They are, you know, becoming certified themselves in those areas so that they can teach those courses. They're taking online courses. They're going to different places and taking training because the state of Ohio does not provide the necessary training they need to do the job that they've been asked to do. So when we're looking at cases like Sean Williams, who killed um, the young man in Walmart, um, God, his name always escapes me, John Crawford. When he, killed John, when he killed John Crawford, he was a basket case and he had never been trained. So when he walked in Walmart, he was afraid for his life. And he shot this kid because he had not been trained. He has no record of training. We're looking at what happened in Euclid to um, with Matthew Rhodes and Louis Catalani, who um, killed Luke Stewart in his car. No training. In fact, the departments they came from told the state they did not take the training. Though, actually, in the the Rhodes, Catalani, mm -hmm. Stewart, like killing. Right. I mean, to me, that that has echoes of the Tamir Rice. Most certainly. Killing because I I 
look at those and wonder, was that the unofficial training? It is unofficial. Uh, because uh, in both yes. cases, you have the senior officer yes. who, who sets it up, tells the younger officer, we're going to show up and we're going to use this as an excuse to yes. get, you're going to cut your teeth on this or something. You know <laughs> so, what I mean? It's, it's hard for me. I look at it and wonder. No, you don't have to wonder. I'm going to confirm it for you. So we, we asked for those training records. Um, so Euclid reported to the state that they took 20 hours of training, but it was not in the continued professional training areas that were statutorily mandated. So they didn't get any um, reimbursement. And so the person who's over the training there has this idea that if we don't get reimbursement, we don't have to take the training. We can take any training we want to, and that's not how it works. So the training that they received was exactly what you just described. They described exactly what you're saying. Everything that just came out of your mouth. The training that was received by Louis Catalani and Matthew Rhodes was exactly what they were trained to do. And they were also trained, you know, fire, firearm, firearm, firearm training. And so they, you know, him pulling out his gun and shooting, that's what he was trained to do. And so, you know, I was upset because this has not been addressed. This has not been addressed by anyone. Um, we took it to the judge, and I'm really hoping that the uh, residents will vote this judge out in the next election. We took it to the judge, and he appointed a special prosecutor who had no authority to do what he did. So I want to make this clear. What we cited were felonies. And the judge under Ohio law was supposed to send the felonies to the Cuyahoga County Prosecution Prosecutor's Office for investigation. So he appoints a municipal prosecutor who has no understanding whatsoever. We know this because of what he wrote. Has no understanding of the cease function issue. Has no understanding that the state said they're not police under Ohio law. He writes this. He writes an opinion. He doesn't write. Um, he doesn't, he did no, he, he writes an interpretation, not an opinion of why they should not be prosecuted. He and the judge, um, in Euclid determined they're still police, even though the records show they're, they've never taken the training and under Ohio law, they're not police officers. So he closed our affidavits because you covered that for us. You were there for us. He closed those affidavits with prejudice, dismissed them with prejudice. He refused to send them over to the county prosecutor and um, he refused to uh, stop prosecuting cases that come through the municipal court that come in from Matthew Rhodes and Louis Catalani. So what you have is you have a judge who's committing what's called misprision of felony. He is covering up the felonies of these people who are unlawfully engaging in law enforcement. And Mariah, being who she is, I never, ever, ever don't tell someone what I'm going to do, I, especially in these type of instances. I let the judge and the lawyer know, we sent you up with affidavits to the Department of Justice because we want you investigated as well. We are going to continue pushing, pushing, pushing for, you know, the people who have the power to stop this and the power to fix this. They have to be held accountable, too. We can't just keep saying hold the police accountable when the people over them are allowing them to do yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely have, you know, when I got into this at first, you're looking at like, oh, it's this officer did this and this department did that and they're 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 standing behind and the unions but then it really becomes clear what a problem prosecutors in general are oh yes and yes. certain certainly judges and who are often come up as prosecutors and the other thing that's really disturbing is finding out how much of the the attorneys around here who do criminal defense play very nice with the prosecution most certainly 
certainly. Um, and you know what? So, you know, I tell people this. I went to law school. I will never forget being the first day in, in class. And the instructor saying to us, everybody look around the room, get to know each other because you're going to have to work together in the future if you guys become lawyers. You're going to have to make deals. You're going to have to be play friendly with each other. They're, they are friends. You know, they, they are friends. They, they talk. They, they, you know, how's your kid? How was the vacation? How's everything going? You know, um, I just remember um, me saying to my instructor, I don't want to know anybody in this court, in this classroom. And he was like, what? I said, I don't want to know anybody in this classroom. I said, because when I go in to defend my client, it's going to be no friendly. Um, we're not going to have a friendly banter. That's not going to happen. Because I'm going to go in with everything inside of me, and I'm going to defend my client to the fullest extent of the so law. That's the story of why you're not a lawyer. Okay, exactly. <laughs> Say that again for the people in the back. Like, I, I you know, um, so... I know someone who, you know, of course, like I said, Department of Justice. And so he always says to me, um, Mariah, you do not play well with others. He says this to me all the time. He says, you know, you just. So I actually found a plaque that's on my desk that says does not play well with others. And so it's true. I don't because I, I feel like I should be able to separate my personal relationship with you and be able to address the issues and defend the client. And that's not how our system operates. Our system operates exactly in the reverse. You're going into courts and you're making deals with people's lives. And that's just wrong. And so many of them, it's just their careers they're thinking of first. Exactly. Like the, whatever, you know, like people like you and I who think about the law, actually want the law to mean something. Um, want it to be better to serve people better and all these things like those none of those thoughts cross these people's mind who do this for a living no. it's like well it's just how you do it and then also the shady people it's the same as like in police and prosecutor's offices it seems like oh the shady chief finds the key you know knows how to spot those shady officers like come over here let me tell you all exactly. the shady tricks and then you have prosecutors like oh here's a new shady guy here, let me tell you all the shady tricks. Here's how you can sleep with the prostitutes that come in. Here's how you can, you know, all all the all these things that you're talking about. Like, you know, no, I don't think Larry McDonald's a, an original thinker. No, he's not. In fact, I've seen Larry on the stand, and Larry is confused when he's talking on the stand. Um, Larry was asked in court, you know, have you ever been trained to do a traffic stop? And he, you know, since you've been in East Cleveland, have you ever been trained? He said no. And, and so, so do you know about the East Cleveland traffic stop policy? No. So nobody's ever given you the policy? No. Do you know where to find the policy? No. Um, I've seen him on the stand. I've seen Larry's writing when he was in uh, basic training. Um, Larry cannot spell, okay? He doesn't know the difference between fail down the steps and fail to test. So he doesn't know the difference. And so he's not an original thinker. Um, and I think it's sad because he's being used by a patriarchal system to funnel African-Americans into, uh, into the pipeline. You know, That's what I see a lot, a, lot of, a, lot, right. a lot of officers. Yeah, I mean, on a certain extent, like they're, they're these patsies. Who, yes, they are. Who are just brought up to, and like, you know, turned, you know, here's how you can be a good cog in right. this awful machine. Right. And and so, you know, so, you know, earlier this year, Chasing Justice, we, we, we turned just a little bit away from what we were doing in terms of looking at it, because we've got more than enough information concerning the cease function issue. But we're now looking at the prosecutors and, and, and holding them accountable. Um, I, I think as we continue to see stories coming out 
consistently in the news that people are getting out of prison 25, 35 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, because prosecutors withheld exculpatory evidence knowing these people were innocent when they put them in jail. Um, even now, Michael Malley, a story came out recently. Michael, there's a man who was found innocent. Um, exculpatory evidence was withheld in in uh, in in uh, from the Kyle County Prosecutor's Office, and so the man has been like in jail for like 15, 20 years, and so he's entitled to funding from the wrongfully conviction fund. And I think that's an issue too that we actually have a fund yeah. for the wrongfully convicted. Okay, that's a huge issue for me. So Michael Malley fought. Him not being released. He fought. And so when they told him, no, he's innocent, he's going home, Michael Malley is now fighting right now. He is fighting right now that he not get any compensation from the wrongfully convicted fund. That is insane. That is absolutely insane. There's a We do not have a progressive prosecutor in our county, um, in our county right now. And this is, this is insane when he knows he was told, it was testified to in court by someone from the state of Ohio that they informed him that the East Cleveland Police Department are not police under Ohio law. They have not been the audit determined from 2015, even though we went back further because we went back all the way to 2006 when the law started. They just did 2015. So we'll stick with 2015 just for the sake of argument. But he was told multiple times by the state of Ohio to remove Larry McDonald, to remove these other people engaging in law enforcement. They did not take the training. The law says they are to be removed from the streets. They are not to function in law enforcement. They are not to carry firearms. So if Michael Malley, when we first brought this to him, when he first found out about all of this, which was in 2018, if Michael Malley had removed Larry McDonald then, Vincent Belmonte would be alive today because he should have removed him. And instead of the city prosecutor fighting and bantering on social media, you know, trying to embarrass me and trying to embarrass my family, trying to do all these things. If she had actually done her job and said, Larry, you're going to leave that gun and you're going to leave that that uh, badge on that desk until you come in here. Because by the time they determined that Larry had not taken training, he was required by law to go back to basic training. And she should have said to him, if you come back in here again, I'm going to have you arrested. Okay, she has a duty to do that. The prosecutor has a duty to do that. They are the ones who are supposed to protect the justice system. But when you're allowing this to happen, when you know and don't care, like she totally defends Larry, totally defends Larry. She even put out public statements that Larry didn't shoot Vincent in the back of the head. I have it in writing. She, yeah, she, she said no. She said that the autopsy report supports Larry's testimony that he turned and yeah, like she's put this. I, I have it in writing. Okay? Unless unless Channel Nineteen put out a forged copy that I was able to look at from their report, then I'm just that's... I'm telling you that the city prosecutor who knows Larry McDonald is in legal cease function, she continues to protect him. She is a black female who has a 12-year-old black son who now could possibly become the victim of a Larry McDonald one day. This is something that it, it, it's mind-boggling to me that instead of you looking at the issues and trying to attack the issues, you spend so much time attacking me. And this, not, I, it just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Um, 
a lot of people um, earlier this year, right after Vincent was killed by Larry, they did another chase and someone burned alive in the car. <laughs> they, they blew up into flames. One person got out. The other person was not able to get out. Um, and ironically, his last name is Crenshaw. I don't know him. I wasn't related to him, but his last name is Crenshaw. And I thought to myself, my God, when is the prosecutor going to stop this? And so every month, and especially last couple months, story after story after story after story that is coming out of East Cleveland, people, property damages. It's like the prosecutors are telling us we don't care what happens to you. One of these guys, Travis Thompson, was chasing. He's a new kid. He just got a basic training. He gets into an accident, okay, chasing someone in you know East Cleveland. Mm -hmm. He left. DeMarco Johnson left. They're both now in Euclid. Oh, really? Yes. It's concerning to me. It's concerning that we have a county prosecutor, a city prosecutor, a city law director, a mayor who sees what's going on. And is doing nothing. Well, I mean, the only the only thing that makes sense to me is that they're all benefiting somehow. I mean, they. I also wonder about like, you have shady officers. Uh, it's been the case in other cities. They work with shady prosecutors, right, to do shady things on the side. Exactly. So it's like Larry McDonald could very well know where some political bodies are buried. In it could be. Life. I mean, it's. Or, it's scary. It is scary. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm learning more and more. Like, there's, like, this undercurrent of just corruption and bad practices all over in cities. It, you know, East Cleveland's got, you know, and, and they all have their own little flavors. Exactly. But it's a lot of the same exactly. dish. Exactly. But we have gone for, like, almost two hours. And that, you know what? And, and I think it's and a we good could go two hours. Two. Exactly. And so... So and I, I want to get into, I think we need to devote like a, just a thing to prosecutors. Cause honestly, I want to learn, exactly. I want to get a, um, I'm looking at a prosecutor right now who it sounds like he's been doing shady stuff going back to, you know, 2009 and has only moved up the ladder and, and he's had shady bosses. And so yeah. I really want to, I'm trying to take in the full scope of all the corruption that's come out in the last 20 years right. from prosecutors. And, and, and I want to come back next week with you right. and have that discussion with and as much history as I can take So in. hopefully I'll be able to give you a little more information because what we're doing now is we're moving our state legislators and our federal legislators to create legislation which will hold prosecutors accountable for wrongful convictions. So even if it happened 20 years ago, oh. if they withheld exculpatory evidence and moved up we that ladder, that. we need to have prosecutors held the accountable. The same way that, like, yeah, police... If they right. had to face personal liability, exactly, and and they you know they didn't have the shield of qualified immunity right. or even yeah just these police unions or things right. like that. But if prosecutors actually oh if you get a case wrong, it's coming back on you because exactly. it doesn't exactly. And that's what I'm saying is that we our focus at chasing justice has gone from the police to the prosecutors and the judges yeah. because they have the power to fix this and they're not doing it. And so when you look at um, oh, Keith, uh, what is his last name? Is it Ellison? Yeah. Was it Keith Ellison with the no. George Floyd? Was his last no, name no, Ellison? No, no. I know his first name is Keith. Yeah, I But you know who I'm talking about. The attorney general uh, that, that prosecuted the George Floyd case, the Derek Chauvin case. Yeah. The, I, so I, I thought it was Ellison. I don't know if I'm... No, is it, is it Keith Ellison? I was thinking, I was thinking you were confusing because, yeah. 
So, My head's so in Ohio, man. There's so many names to get yeah, right. up on the So side. when I listened to Keith talk after the conviction, I cried. I just cried because I felt like there's hope for us because there are people like him who are willing to take on the injustice of the justice system and to make sure that justice is done. He, he That was courage. It took courage for him to do what he did to Derek Chauvin. It was courage. We need to have people in office who are going to take this bull by the horns and take the responsibility. We cannot undo the past. We cannot fix the past, but we can rectify the past. And that is what we need. And so, yes, we are moving now for our federal, for federal legislation and for um, state legislation, which will hold prosecutors accountable for doing this. You know this kid is not guilty and you're still prosecuting him. You know you have no evidence this person is not guilty and you're still prosecuting him. You're withholding exculpatory evidence from the criminal defense attorney. You know this. And so there are people right now that should go home. They should go home. And the prosecutors need to take their place in prisons. That's where they need to be because it's not fair that they're stealing lives and they're, they're going on with theirs and they're, like you said, moving up the ladder. It's not fair to people who are innocent and should not have ever gone to jail or prison for what, you know, they were accused. And so that's our focus now is that we want to start holding prosecutors and judges accountable um, for allowing this. Because I think I shared this with you and then we can kind of close up. Um, she's no longer on the bench, but we had a judge who literally sealed the evidence that the East Cleveland Police Department were not police. She sealed the evidence in the case. We have the journal entry. She sealed it. So she should never sit on the bench and she should be disciplined by the Ohio Supreme Court for sealing evidence because that is exculpatory evidence. That is exculpatory. And that should be something that a jury should be able to hear and make a determination. Was the actual arrest of that person actually lawful? And so, you know, we've got to start holding prosecutors and judges accountable for the uh, the wrongful convictions of innocent people. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm really that's that's who I want to learn about next. Yeah. And, and that's what that's the thing I'm finding. And I get very tired of. Everybody fixates on what the national conversation, the news story, the awful right. thing that's going on. It's like, well, I think a reason a lot of these people can get away with this stuff is because no one's paying close attention. Exactly. And there isn't enough press that's willing to just flat out, I don't know, I, I think I take a posture towards prosecutors that a lot of press will take towards right. uh, people who are accused of crimes. Right. Like, oh, you must have done something. Right. <laughs> like, I have that right. suspicion of... Like a prosecutor is now at this point where I'm just like, I'm not going to trust anything that's coming, uh, you know. That's right. why I don't really worry about getting access to these people. Right. And, and, and you know, you have to remember something, Brian, that um, people are just evil. <laughs> it's just that simple. We, we're talking about people that are just simply evil. Um, you don't have to create criminals. You're always going to have criminals. Well, if I have to define evil, at least in the context of the people that are going up in these, it's like they're just completely self-centered. Most certainly. Most certainly. And, yeah, and, and, yeah and, 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 and have never developed the capacity for empathy or sympathy or don't see the humanity of right. people. I don't know how you live with yourself doing the things that I've seen prosecutors do. They pick up those paychecks story, and they go home they and they drive the BMWs home. That's how. Well, and they tell themselves stories about like, you know, because it's not like every case a prosecutor gets is they do dirty. Exactly. So those ones where they actually put away someone who did a bad thing. And or, we don't have a problem 
with those. But again, yeah. why are you creating criminals? You but don't have to, to create be, criminals. They need to be sure that they're always right. Exactly. But you don't need to create criminals. No. You're always going to have criminals. You're always going to have somebody that steals, kills, lies, destroys. You're going to have that. Well, let's so. create some criminals out of some prosecutors. Amen. So um, we, we're committing to doing uh, this podcast maybe once or twice a month, maybe. Yeah. Um, we and, and we'll be able to have these conversations and be able to get this information out and, you know, maybe get people enjoying. But I do want you to know that there is a national movement to hold prosecutors accountable. And so we didn't just, just decide to do this. It was interesting. When we decided to do it, we found out that there were other organizations that were also pushing. In fact, the Innocence Project is now pushing to hold prosecutors accountable. So this is a national movement. It just hasn't picked up steam yet, and we really need to get that conversation moving. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of the reforms people want to see, whether, you know, when it comes to um, uh, problems with mass incarceration, problems with the police, uh, getting good local prosecutors and judges. Right. That's, that's where all these awful policies, that's where they can hit the road. Right. And, and you can't start to undo them until you get people in those exactly. local levels. So. so thank you for having me. And we will just carve out time to have these conversations. Um, and hopefully, you know, people have comments or whatever and they try to want to get in contact with us. People can always get us through www.chasingjusticellc.com. Um, and, and you can, you know... Get in contact with us. Well, not through social media because I did deactivate our social media page for a while. It's no, but if you put any, if you send any comments or email, email, course, right? And then if you send any comments on wherever this is posted, right. uh, If they're not trash, I'll let Mariah know. <laughs> and I'll see them because I follow it. And so, yeah, you know, we we have to start engaging people to be more progressive and productive in in addressing these issues. And I want to thank you again, Brian. You have been so instrumental in opening up. Um, avenues that mainstream media has not been able to open up in these stories and give full accountability. Um, and you're, you know, you are doing what I love. You are creating historical records for people to be able to look at and say, look, he said this stuff back in 2000, you know, 2020 or 2019. Um, and here it is, you know, full fledged. So, you know, keep pressing forward. That's what we do. Thank and you. we're going to make sure that, you know, we continue to work the work and we do it together. And I'm going to just tell you, thank you. You did a great job on the Belmonte video. I am only as good, you know, they say, um, there's a saying like cop is only as good as his informants. Okay. Like, you know, journalists, I'm only as good as my sources. <laughs> well, you've been an excellent student. I can tell you that. So thank you again. And, you know, I look forward to the next time we do this, um, you know, two hours. Hopefully it was interesting and people will listen and they'll follow all the way through. Um, but it's it's a worth it's worth a two hour listen. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. All right. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you. <laughs> so we're done. I think we're done. Let's have a weekend.